really good morning to all of you. Thank you for being here today and looking forward to looking at this fantastic passage uh, with you. It's such an engaging, uh, vivid passage, and uh, we're going to enjoy looking at it together. Um, but want to start with apologies if, if there are any fishing fans in. Um, I'm, I'm going to be slightly rude about you during the sermon, so just <laughs> thought I'd prepare uh, you for that. It's nothing directly personal. Um, the, the New Testament Charlie Dodd wrote this, and I think this is such an important insight. He said, the resurrection was not a belief that grew up within the church. It is the belief around which the church itself grew up. So it's like a variation on, on which came first, the chicken or the egg. Um, which came first, the resurrection or a belief in the resurrection? That's really clear-cut. It's, it's the resurrection. It wasn't as though kind of the church started, things got going, and then they started to sort of look back and sort of justify what they were doing uh, or make reasons for uh, the, the shape, the life of the church. It was the resurrection of Jesus that comes first, and then out of that, from that, uh, flows everything else. And I don't know about you, I love the resurrection appearances. I love the authenticity. I love the doubt. I love the confusion. I love how down-to-earth it is. They're breathless and fragmentary, but they're stunning in their effect. Jesus coming back to life after his crucifixion, it was shocking. Even though he had said that it would happen, it was shocking. It was a startling intrusion that nobody was expecting or even hoping for. There's no, there's no whiff in the gospel accounts of this being propaganda that was made up later in a sense to, to, to rewrite the history of the past. And I think what I enjoy about all of this is it, it's clear that it takes time for the enormity of Jesus' resurrection to sink in. It, it, the resurrection of Jesus didn't just say something about who Jesus is and was, but it also started to show that there are radical, revolutionary consequences uh, for all of us across the world. And yet Jesus, post-resurrection, is still Jesus. We see him in a new light, but all that was true of him before is still true of him now, post-resurrection. And if there are any sort of Tolkien or Lord of the Rings fans in the building or online today, then that's exactly what Tolkien was going for when he compares Gandalf the Grey post that traumatic, dramatic fight down into the depths of the earth and then Gandalf the White afterwards. He's trying to, in a sense, visualize or portray that same sense of continuity, but now Jesus is something more, something bigger. But the, the, the passage begins uh, with uh, Peter saying something that I'm never going to say. I'm going out to fish. Uh, I mean, what a waste of time. <laughs> it just... <laughs> what was he thinking? I, mean, I know he was a fisherman, but seriously, I mean, there's so many better things to do. Um, but if you remember, Peter and his disciples um, had deserted and betrayed Jesus uh, when it came to the crunch. And then some of the women closest to Jesus 
had gone on that first Easter Sunday, found a tomb that was empty. John and Peter race to the tomb. They find it empty. Uh, Jesus appears to them all, as we were looking last week, at all the disciples, including Thomas, in the upper room. And his word to them is, is wait. You need to wait uh, for a little bit. And so this passage is in that waiting time. Uh, th- this isn't Simon giving up, but it is Simon trying to fill the time. And in a sense, he sort of, he did what he'd always done, which was he went back to Galilee and he went fishing uh, with his friends. He's still the leader, and so everybody follows. And as we read in the passage, what happens? They fish, and then they fish, and then they fish some more. And as almost always happens when you go fishing, they catch almost nothing. Um, That really is the very essence of fishing uh, for you. But Jesus appears on the shore in the early morning. And notice how gentle and subtle his approach is. He doesn't stand on the shore and shout out, I am the son of the living God, risen from the dead. Come here. Instead, he calls out. It's, it's, it's playful, really. I love it. He says, friends, it's about 100 meters away, apparently. Friends, haven't you any fish? You can feel the disappointment in their simple no. To them... Jesus is still a figure on the shore, nothing more. So Jesus carries on. Again, it's, it's playful. It's, it's playing on memory. Throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find someone. Now, that's an unusual thing for a bystander to say. I, I don't know if there are any real fishing enthusiasts in the building or online today. Maybe you've been given some unhelpful or contrary advice in your time. Clearly, the disciples don't know it's Jesus yet, but they immediately encounter a huge shoal of fish. And John, uh, the beloved disciple, still has, of all of them, the clearest insight. Just as on Easter Sunday, uh, when Uh, him and Peter arrived at the empty tomb. Now, we're thinking at this stage, reading it with hindsight, we're thinking, you know, it was kind of obvious. A lone figure on the seashore tells you to lower your net one more time after a fruitless night of fishing. You do lower your nets. You do catch loads of fish. Doesn't a a little bell go off on your head saying, you know, hasn't this happened before? Because that's what happened previously. And that's hindsight for you. That's how Simon Peter, the first time this happened, really first met with Jesus. And that was the time when Jesus gives this image of letting down nets. He gives that image to the disciples as a picture of one of our main responsibilities whilst we are here as servants and friends of Jesus, that we are to take our small part in gathering into God's kingdom, all the people that he is calling. But it's John who says, it is the Lord. Now, some other things haven't changed. John is the person who sees things clearly, who works out what's going on. Peter, on the other hand, is the first one to act. He's not going to hang around mending nets if Jesus is standing there on the shore. So he jumps into the water and swims to the shore 
I don't know. I wonder what happened next. It doesn't tell us. I don't know whether he rushes to Jesus and gives him a hug or whether he kind of stands a little way off waiting for the others. He's kind of suddenly feeling isolated and nervous and unsure. Some other things haven't changed. Jesus is still the servant. Just as he'd taken a towel at the Last Supper, just as he'd washed their feet, just as he told them that love is shown most clearly in humility and in self-sacrifice. So now, on this morning, he is the perfect breakfast host. He's prepared a fire. There's fish on it, already cooking. Think of the smell. There's some bread gently baking. Think of the smell. What a wonderful breakfast to have. Peter likes being given something to do. And so when Jesus says, bring some of the fish you've caught, Peter Peter jumps aboard the boat again and he drags the whole catch in, all 153 fish. Now that is a very specific number, isn't it? 153. Was that the fisherman cooking the books? I don't know. It, it's, it's definitely a boat full. You know, you know what fishermen are like. They probably did count them. Um, and kind of good, for, good for bragging rights. And they couldn't eat them all for breakfast, could they? I guess the question is, is, is that 153, is that just a number, like a fact that since John is just recording, they caught a huge number, it filled the boat, and that number was 153. We don't know. Lots of theologians who are occasionally given to flights of fancy are keen to mine the symbolism of that number. Uh, but like the numbers that we were looking at in Revelation, if you were here in our series last summer, of course, you can make numbers mean almost anything you want to. It's not very difficult. Uh, So, for instance, St. Jerome found a fish expert. And that fish expert at the time uh, said that, amazingly, there were 153 species of fish in the known world. And so, therefore, this number 153 signifies uh, the the totality of uh, humanity. All people of every class, every tribe, every time. Now, of course, the problem with that is that there's way more than 153 species of fish. Uh, St. Augustine observed that there are 10 commandments uh, which we should keep, but we can't. Uh, He says we need God's grace and we need the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. So 10 commandments and you add seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, you get to 17. Now, if you add up all the numbers from 1 to 17, do you know what number you get to? 153. (laughs) So he's like, (laughs) there we go. It's fair to say, in John's highly symbolic world, that I think 153 probably is more than just a number. I think it is a number. I think somebody did count. But I think it represents, as Jerome was hinting, the totality of the nations that are drawn into the new creation. So in a sense, it's it's symbolic of Jesus' intent. This is not just about a hearty breakfast. And in Acts 2, 9 to 11, Luke 
records 17 countries represented in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. So this catching of the fish isn't just entirely random. It's not just for a great breakfast. It seems to be, in and of itself, an act of restoration, a sense of, of letting the disciples begin again, reminding them, look, this is your role. This, this is your part to play. And it's also, it's a commissioning or a recommissioning. You know, that's what I asked you to do all the way back then. All kinds of things have happened. You failed. I've died. I'm back to life. And here we are again. And we're starting again. And again, I am commissioning you as my friends to go and be part of God's loving mission to the whole world, uh, to everybody. Now, of course, it's still, all of this is still dawning on them. You know, we've had centuries uh, as a church to think about this. This is all, it's like a slow motion encounter, isn't it, with Jesus. And they're thinking, is he different? Is he the same? It's sort of Jesus, but it's sort of not quite like he used to be. We know he was killed. We don't dare ask, who are you? But that, of course, is what they're thinking. I'd like to share what particularly strikes me about this resurrection account. The first is the forbearance and the gentleness of Jesus. It wasn't just an empty tomb that convinced the disciples about the resurrection of Jesus. The tomb was empty, and the Bible's evidence for that I find utterly convincing, but it was also this series of intimate, personal, and if we're honest, rather low-key encounters with Jesus. Compared to Jesus' birth, there are no squadrons of angels announcing the resurrection to the world. There are no exotic gifts, uh, kings bringing gifts from afar. There are no dazzling, unbelievable miracles. It's ordinary. It's bread and fish and fire and water and friendship. Those are the tools that Jesus uses to communicate that he is alive and that he is recommissioning them. He doesn't overwhelm them. He doesn't bully them into a resurrection faith. He is tender. He is gracious. He's understanding of their confusion. He's understanding of the need of their hearts and their minds to catch up with their ears and with their eyes. And many of us here would be able to talk about the tenderness and the patience and the forbearance of Jesus in the same way with us over the years. And we thank him for that. And we also, once, in a sense, we want to share that tenderness and that graciousness and that forbearance with others. Both friends who aren't uh, currently Christians who don't share our faith and with whom the temptation is just to get frustrated because they're so pig-headed or they won't listen or they won't understand or maybe in pastoral situations uh, with, with people who, who we, we sort of long would understand grace more deeply or accept the gifts that God uh, gives and yet somehow aren't 
This is just a reminder to us about Jesus' grace and forbearance. The second thing is stark and beautiful and compelling. It's this, the initiative belongs to Jesus. He is the boss. He's the one who says, throw out your nets. He's the one who says, bring some of the fish. He's the one who says, come, friends, and have breakfast. There is a way, isn't there, of doing church that mistakenly sees the initiative as ours. So we get together in this building. We like church and think it's a good idea. We have great ideas about what would make church work well. And we, we get a band together and we have some screens and we have some live stream stuff. And then when we've done all of those things, then we go, oh, now's the time to invite Jesus to come and be part of what we're doing. That's totally wrong. The initiative and the invitation belong to Jesus. He's the one who says, come. We are here together today at the invitation of Jesus. He's the one who's invited all of us here. And we must continue to do church in a way that recognizes we are simply responding to his invitation. And thirdly, we are beginning to see that the resurrection will change everything. It's going to change the disciples. It's going to ch- and, and we sort of see it in slow motion through John 20 and 21. The, the, the disciples are changing from scared, confused, squabbling, infighting to women and men of faith and love and courage and hope. They are being restored here as evangelists, as people that are going to take the good news to the world, as people who are going to go and let down the nets and bring up a wonderful catch of people. That's what we're seeing as this is happening. Very soon the waiting is over and the Holy Spirit falls on them at Pentecost. But it's a resurrection faith from the beginning. Going back to Charlie Dodd at the start, it's the resurrection that shapes and drives what is happening in the church. It's not the church 20, 30, 40, 50 years later sort of waking up and thinking, well, we've got this thing called church. How do we explain what's going on? Okay, we'll go back and we'll rewrite what happens to make the resurrection the thing that started this all off. It's not the way it happened. Worship in those early days changed from Saturday to Sunday. Why? Because Sunday was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. The, the two uh, sort of rituals or in a sense, the two things that the church really did and that were new and that they took seriously in those first days were A, baptism, and B, uh, celebrating in bread and wine together. Those things are both entirely shaped by the death and by the resurrection of Jesus. When you were baptized, you were baptized into the death and the resurrection of Jesus. When you shared in bread and wine together as a community, you celebrated the death of Jesus. You celebrated his resurrection as an almighty sign that his death was effective. And you looked forward 
to the time when he would come again. The resurrection was changing everything. And soon, very soon, these disciples were going to see life in a completely new way. New beginnings, new hope, new compassion, new love, new courage, new passion. And and I think that really strikes a chord with so many of us here. Uh, we, We would love, in a sense, our horizon to be changed and transformed and challenged by the resurrection. We would love to be in a way that gives him glory. We'd love to be part of a church community that is seeing people come to faith. But of course, it's, these things are crowded out, aren't they? By our own cares, our own anxieties, our own concerns. So it's just good that we stand back at this season post-Easter and we just remind ourselves what the resurrection is and how it changed things so that we can ask God by his spirit to come and change us again. Amen.